This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Imagine you or a loved one has to go in for surgery. I've been there many times. Now, of all the things you worry about, and there are many, having a foreign object like a sponge, a scalpel, or a rubber glove left in your body is probably the last thing you think about. But think again. In the past two years, 553 foreign objects were left behind in patients post-surgery, and that is a 14% hike in the rate over five years and twice the average of 12 other reporting countries. Now, I thought a good way to avoid this was instituted several years ago. And there are other patient safety problems where we also lag behind other countries, notably for the older demographic, the rate of avoidable complications like lung clots after hip or knee surgery is 90% higher than the OECD average. So I'd like to hear from you if you're worried about this, if you've had an experience of this, uh, if you're going in for surgery, I, I don't mean to scare you for certain. Uh, the number is to call 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740-4740. And right now, let's go to Tracy Johnson, who is the Director of Health System Analysis and Emerging Issues at the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Sandy Cossey, co-chair of Patients for Patient Safety Canada, and Linda Hughes, co-chair of Patients for Patient Safety Canada. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Libby. Okay, let us start with Tracy, uh, you were in charge of compiling this analysis. Did it surprise you? So we, um, we've been following the OECD. Um, we've been comparing ourselves to the OECD for a while now. Uh, so we have understood that patient safety is one of those areas where we are lagging behind. We've seen some improvement in some of the indicators, but generally for the uh, OB trauma and tears for post-op complications like blood clots and foreign body left in, we are below the OECD average. Okay, let's go to uh, Linda. Were you surprised? Uh, no, I was not surprised at all. And in fact, um, these statistics show a small part of the story regarding the crisis we have in Canada related to preventable harm. Um, we have about 28,000 deaths per year in Canada that could be prevented. Um, so these are just some of the examples. Uh, but I do want to talk a bit about, like two months ago, a friend died of a preventable lung clot after a knee replacement. So so sorry, after a knee replacement, which mm -hmm. is considered so a pretty routine. That's, um, you know, I guess he's one of those. Uh, but on the flip side, uh, another friend had an uneventful recovery from a knee replacement, and his quality of life has drastically improved. So it's not every knee knee trans knee knee uh, replacement or hip replacement that ends up in blood clots. They can be prevented, 
and it's unfortunate that they're not. Okay, Sandy, uh, your take, were you surprised by this number? Yeah, certainly. Thanks, Libby. Um, And just a bit of a clarification. So I'm representing the Canadian Patient Safety Institute and certainly partners with my colleagues on the line here. Um, So on behalf of our organization, um, no, we were not surprised, unfortunately. Although we do know there's been a a great deal of work and a lot of improvement efforts right across the country to ensure high-quality, safe health care for the people that expect and deserve it. Um, But unfortunately, sometimes these things do happen, and this data is an opportunity for improvement. So great that Canada is collecting such information and robust information through the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and this is just a, a, a big, strong signal for us to start focusing our improvement efforts um, based on this alarming data. Okay, so I, I want to start with that, that to me, crazy uh, number and and um, item with the foreign objects left behind in patients. Now, my understanding is, and I don't know how many years ago this was, it was fairly recent, that there were a lot of studies which showed that if uh, surge- surgeons and the teams in operating rooms adopted the same kind of checklists that pilots have, that it reduces that dramatically. And I thought that's what everybody did in an operating room. Am I wrong? Who wants to take that, Linda? Um Well, I do think that those safety checklists are in place um, a lot of places across Canada when surgery is happening, but uh, we're dealing with people and sometimes um, things don't go the way they're supposed to, unfortunately, and we have to look into why it didn't work and try to prevent it from happening again. That's a really important message out of this, for sure. Yeah. Tracy, do, do you measure, say, would you measure something like uh, how many operating rooms complied with having that checklist in place? We don't have data living down to that kind of a granular level. What I will say about the numbers, though, for the foreign body left in is 553 is not good, but it's also not large given the millions of surgeries that we do in Canada, both day surgeries and and, um, full operating room surgeries that we do in Canada. So because the numbers are low, if you, it means that they can, you know, a 14% increase can happen um, more easily on that low number than it can on a, on a larger number. So I'm not, I'm not obfuscating this. I, but I am saying that you have to take into consideration that, um, it is it is a small number, and so when it goes up or down by uh, a little bit, you'll see a large fluctuation in that percentage change. Um, all not to say it is a preventable thing, and it should be. Um, we should be driving towards zero here. Well, it, it's it is almost one a day for two years, and, and Sandy, I, again, you know, when I look at something like that. It's, it seems like a no-brainer if you count, and before you close up a patient, you count again to make sure that you have them all on the table and, and not leaving them. You know, I, I don't see why it would be almost one a day, Sandy. You got it. Um, certainly, as you can imagine, a surgical an operating room is a very stressful, chaotic environment, and certainly in some circumstances, they're very urgent environments where a a patient might be undergoing a a surgery. Um, And sometimes things happen, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes those things go unnoticed or unchecked. 
things like the surgical checklist, really good teamwork and communication within the OR suite and even after our patients um, outside of that operating room is really important. There's also technologies that can be put in place to ensure those things are double counted and double checked. Um, with respect to you know something being something left behind in a patient's body, that can cause extreme grief and trauma. Um, you know, truly, as Tracy mentioned, these are things that we need to be striving towards zero. This is a type of incident and a very serious type of preventable harm incident that we've actually coined as a never event. So using appropriate checks and balances, best practice guidelines, good teamwork tools like the surgical safety checklist, these things should never happen. Um, even one is too many. So 553, almost, as you mentioned, it's almost one a day for a couple of years. That even one is too many in this circumstance. Okay, I'm going to take a, a call from Ernie in Peterborough. And Ernie, you say you had a towel left in you? Yes, I had uh, some bowel surgery and uh, uh, for cancer, and it was apparently successfully uh, reconnected. However, <laughs> I wasn't recovering, and after several days, they uh, determined that I wasn't. Uh, so they gave me an X-ray that didn't show it. It showed something, but they weren't sure. The CAT scan found that they'd left a towel in me. Oh, my they goodness. They rushed me into surgery and uh, removed the towel. And uh, But at the same time, apparently, because the towel was beginning to adhere, um, it disturbed the sutures of the surgery. So they had to give me a third surgery uh, soon after to uh, go to an ostomy and diversion, um, and uh, I've spent the last, because it was a year ago, September, so I've spent this time waiting for an opportunity, which they're hopefully doing this end of the month in Toronto to uh, do a reversal, and uh, quite stressful, obviously. It, it, that sounds awful. That totally... Uh messed up your your outcome did they apologize like how was it how did they deal with that with you well uh, uh, of course the surgery came in and said uh you know never happened in 14 years and i'm very sorry uh i appreciate mistakes happen but a towel wasn't a sponge it was a towel and then uh my aftercare is another question or lack thereof and uh and Anyway, um, I was another topic you should consider one day is the apparently difficulty in getting some kind of uh, recovery. And I'm not looking for the excited States of America style, but, you know, any out-of-pocket expenses or anything else. Apparently, the medical profession is funded by the federal government for defending any type of uh, action or malpractice uh um, concerns. Are you going to take legal actions? <clears throat> I'm certainly seeking counsel to uh, to have it reviewed. As was said to me, I've lost a year of my life, and uh, those things that I would like to do, and and also having an ostomy hasn't been a very pleasant situation. Um, so I would think I'll be uh, seeking legal advice to do so. Have I met with? Uh, counsel, no, but I've been, my family feels that I should do so, and I certainly have had my, my moments, to say the least. Ernie, I'm so sorry to hear about 
your story. It sounds awful. And, and uh, I really want to thank you for telling us about it. Um, I'm going to let you go and I'm going to let our guests who are expert on patient safety respond. So Ernie, thank you so much and, and all the best to you. Thank you very much, ladies. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, Sandy, what would you say to our last caller? Oh, certainly. First off, I would uh, apologize again to Ernie. This is tragic, and uh, he, he certainly provided that very personal and very human perspective on, on how this can impact somebody's life and their quality of life. And so that experience is something that we should be doing something about, um, you know, the facility that provided that care and that unintended outcome for, for Ernie uh, has impacted his family. And so absolutely, that's fantastic that the organization apologized. They're investigating the incident and that information should be broadly shared so that we can learn from that to not, you know, all hospitals across the country and even around the world can learn from that type of experience so that it doesn't happen to another patient again. Linda, uh how liable are hospitals and does that affect how they treat the patient after a mistake has been made? Well, um, most of our provinces in Canada do have this um, apology legislation in place. And uh, I'm happy to hear that uh, Ernie had um, uh, some type of an apology. One of the things that Patients for Patient Safety Canada um, is um, raising across the country right now while we're meeting with um, uh, provincial ministries is um, what kind of supports are in place for someone who is harmed? And do they have those supports in place, such as counseling for the patient and the family? Uh, Ernie, for example, you know, had to get used to uh, an ostomy, which is sometimes very hard for most people. Yeah. Um, also, uh, help in navigating the system because you know, obviously he's had to have way more interaction with the system. And did somebody help him and his family with all of that? And even up to and including, you know, if financial resources are required to, because of what's happened with the harm, is that in place? So those are some of the questions I would have, and that we are patients for Patient Safety Canada are are fighting for. Wow. Uh, Tracy, uh, moving along to other some of the other harms, and I'm uh, looking at this blood clot thing. And again, when I was in the hospital after surgery, and the last time was quite a while ago, thank goodness, one of the things that they did was that they put on these extremely long and nasty white compression stockings uh, for the immediate post-surgical period. And that apparently does a really good job of preventing this. That is one of the things that is done to prevent uh, lung clots. So because you have a surgery that uh, doesn't allow you to walk around as you normally would and you're immobilized or you're in bed for a period of time, blood can pool in your legs and clots can form and those can break off and end up in your lungs. So it's a pretty serious situation. 
Some of the other things that are done are for those people who are able to take them, they're put on blood thinners and mobilizing or walking people and getting them up early and fast are some of the other things that they do. What we see in these numbers is while we are below the OECD average, we do see a decrease from five years ago in this rate. So there are efforts uh, in this area. Uh Linda, do you have anything to say about that? Um, no, I, I think that has covered it. I mean, there there are ways to mitigate blood clots after a knee replacement or hip replacement, and they are primarily what was suggested. And I think it's very important that people, at least my friend who had a, a very good recovery uh, post knee replacement, he was placed on any you know blood thinners or anticoagulants for two weeks post surgery, and I think that's pretty well standard practice. But perhaps sometimes it doesn't happen. Okay, I I'm think go- that there are, Libby, I will say, I think there are there is a cohort of people who can't take blood thinners. So hospitals do their best with the stockings, and sometimes they use uh, more mechanical means to, um, with mechanical leg pumps to help too. Um, but there aren't always, there is, there is a cohort of people who aren't able to take blood thinners, so they have to be extra cautious with those folks. Okay, let's take a call from Linda in Scarborough. Hi, Linda. Hi, um, thank you for taking my call. I'm a former OR nurse and an OR recovery manager, and these protocols actually have been in place for over 40 years, a pre-count and post-count when people come into surgery, when they leave surgery, if there's a miscount, a double count is done, and after the double count, if something is still missing, then an x-ray is done before the patient leaves recovery room. Now, those are protocols that we followed um, and it certainly have, we have had people left, had a sponge inside left if, after emergency surgery, but we never had it, people come back because those protocols are followed. So, um, even though the OR can be chaotic, most of the time it's fairly stable, but it can be chaotic being an emergency, but the staff still have to remain and do those pro- protocols to make sure nothing happens further on down the line. The, as for the, um, post-care with the embolisms, yes, the stockings definitely seem to make a difference, and we did have those, and we also had the compression motorized uh, devices as well to help patients. So that's just my information for you. Okay, well, you say the, the, the protocols where you worked were in place for a very long time. Did, did you have uh, experiences like our caller Ernie had where, where there was a mistake made? I mean, are you surprised to see that number? Um, I'm hoping that most of those mistakes are made when there's a, a dire emergency in the operating room. People are kind of flustered. That's the only thing I can eat because no matter what happens, those protocols have to be followed. So the numbers should be fairly low, but that's the only time I could see it happening is when it, you know, person is bottoming out and there's something major happening. Um, the anesthetist also has a major role to play in, in the operating room as well. And I think most people think the surgeon is the most important person, which he definitely is. The anesthetist also plays a large um, part of your care in the operating room, taking care of your blood pressure and your medications as well. I, I kind of always envisioned it to be, you know, kind of like a pilot. You know how even when stuff is happening, they always, or, or air traffic controllers, they they sound kind of cool. So it's not yeah. like that. And and you have to have, um, I think, when you hire staff for the operating room, you have to make sure you're not hiring someone who has a low stress level. You have to be able to take the stress and still function with that high stress level. And, you know, we, like I say, we have had a few cases where in an emergency situation, we have had miscounts, 
But on the second count, we have found that there was a sponge left in. Never instruments. It's always been a sponge or, or a, a radio peak gauze, which are actually they're radio peak for certain reasons, so that they can be seen on or on a uh, radiography. Um, we've had a person who actually the count seemed to be okay and then complained in the recovery and we've done an x-ray and there has been a sponge left in. So there are, there's certainly nothing is 100% perfect, um, but hopefully protocols are followed and I think that would be the main thing to stress is to follow those protocols and if you have a miscount, do the x-ray before the person goes to the recovery room so they can be re-examined before they're closed up. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, the other area that was cited in this are obstetrical cares, women after giving birth. Uh, you, what would the reason for that be, Tracy? Would that be maybe they should have had a, a you know, a cesarean or an episiotomy, or what would the reason be? Um, I'm. We're not clinicians, but these are. We're talking about. Um, third and fourth degree tears that w- of the pelvic floor, of tissues in the pelvic floor. And we have two indicators. One is with instrumental assistance and one is without. And there are, um, there are some protocols to try and alleviate tears. Some of the suggestions right now are that we have, um, we have larger babies, uh, than we used to have. So that is more problematic for mothers delivering as well. Um, uh, larger babies as well as there's a suggestion in the literature that there's a decrease in the episiotomy rates. And, you know, we went through um, a time in Canada where episiotomies were um, thought, not necessarily by clinicians, but by others to thought to be not necessarily necessary. And we're starting to see there's some more research on that now. So there is a suggestion that if you had uh, an episiotomy, which is a controlled tear, that you wouldn't get these extreme tears. Okay. Uh, Linda, I'd like to go back to the beginning. You said that you, I think you characterized it as a, as an epidemic. What no, are I you said refer- a crisis. A crisis. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, 28,000 deaths per year in Canada, uh, preventable deaths, the third uh, leading cause of death after heart and cancer. Okay, and uh, so where do you see the most urgent need? Like, what do you, how would you start to address this? Well, I, I think, um, you know, well, um, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the CPSI's um, focus on conquer silence. And um, I really agree with, with that approach. Um, I think we need the public to really understand that we do have uh, safety issues in our healthcare system. And if the public um, begin to understand this, a couple of things will happen, I think. Be, first of all, there'll be an outcry and our politicians and everybody else who's in, you know, sets policies and regulations and does funding, etc., will pay attention if the public starts to have an outcry about this situation. So I think that's very important. But also, I think when the public is more aware of, um, you know, that there are safety concerns, I think that they perhaps themselves will take a different approach to um, obtaining health care and start to think about what they can do as well to to try and keep themselves safe. You know, so I think that, um, and there are some things that people can do. Um, unfavorable reactions to medications are often a cause of harm, um, especially in older people who are taking many multiple medications. 
And so I think we all need to take responsibility to know what medications we're on and ask about can we get off some of them and ask about how they should be monitored and ask about what are the interactions between all of these medications. And one of the things that Patients for Patient Safety Canada has been involved in in developing is uh, a little poster called Five Questions to Ask About Your Medications. And there are uh, five questions um, that um, I guess we developed a couple of years ago along with CPSI and the Institute for Safe Medication Practice. And um, it has become... Um, I see it everywhere I am in Winnipeg when I'm in an elevator in a hospital where um, on posters everywhere. And my understanding is is that it has uh, you know been translated into thirty or forty languages. It's being spread across the country, um, and it's that and across other countries. And that's an important one example I'd like to give about how we ourselves can start to take some responsibility ourselves as well. Okay. Um, we are out of time on that. Thank you so much, Tracy Johnson, Director of Health System Analysis and Emerging Issues at Kai High, Sandy Cossey, Co-Chair of uh, Patients for Patient Safety Canada, and Linda Hughes. Thank you very much for your insights. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.